Good evening, friends. My name is Nick. Oh, I'm in my room. This is Nick Flanagan Weekly, by the way, one of my interview episodes. So get ready for a great interview coming right up. But I just want to let you know I'm in my room or my other room. I kind of have two rooms now. I'm in a room in a place I used to sleep until there was a pandemic that also functioned as, as an office of sorts. Function and it is. And I'm having quite the time. It's, uh, I've kind of, after being away and having that really nice setup on, on, uh, at the artist residence for my studio, I've tried to replicate the work space here so that I can have the best flow. And it's a work in progress, no pun intended, because, well, there's a cat and, you know, there's a bed and you lie on the bed and the cat goes on your chest and rubs your chest. And look, this is getting a little not safe for work. And this episode is very safe for work. And it's also safe for brains. It's an interview with Adil Brar, the reporter, well, a reporter, a journalist, who uh, worked out of New Delhi for BBC India, um, reporting on Indian and Chinese news for a time. He's also worked for National Geographic and is a freelancer with articles in quite a few different publications. They can be found on the web or on his website at adilbrar.com. That's A-A-D-I-L-B-A-R-A-R.com. We really had a nice chat. Uh, a buddy of mine uh, recommended I speak with him, and uh, Adil, and, and we really uh, got along. And I really tried to hang back and just listen because... Uh, I just want to know a lot more, not just about the world situation or international politics, but about what's really going on worldwide, because media is very often just written from the perspective of whatever country you're in as the protagonist. So getting a read on all these different takes on different countries from the countries themselves can give you a clearer picture. And he gets into that in our talk. We talk about bots. We talk about COVID um, because he was working for the BBC uh, at the time of, uh, of COVID, um, uh, of uh, China's COVID outbreak. And currently is in Ottawa, which is where I spoke to him from. So if you enjoy the episode, make sure you go to his website. Um, follow him on Twitter. And also you can follow me. On Twitter, at the Flans, at Nick Flanagan Weekly, Instagram, same type of thing. It's Nick Flan Weekly on the Twitter, actually. And of course, if you want to support the podcast, ko-fi.com slash Nick Flanagan. That's ko-fi.com slash Nick Flanagan. I can really use it. We can all really use it. So if you uh, can really use it, don't worry about using it on me. But if you can really use it but still have some more to use, maybe use it on me and I'll keep doing episodes. I was really happy to have a reporter on this episode, and I really hope to continue to have episodes like this where I am learning, and the listener is hopefully learning, too. So, without any ado, here is, and without any ado, I bid you adieu, and I ask you to listen to my interview 
with Ideal Bro. And, and, uh, and, um, you know, yeah, I like to also have some informal parts and joke around, but I also, you know, especially for this one, I'm very interested in like, uh, gleaning information. So, and I, right. didn't, I didn't shave cause I wanted to like really get you comfortable with your COVID haircut and the fact that I'm <laughs> um, I've been giving interviews with this haircut. <laughs> and now I think it's gone viral and uh, people know me because because of this. <laughs> I was on Al Jazeera, uh, like almost, uh, they say they have a viewership of around 40 million people around the world. Yeah. So I think by now at least a million people have seen this. <laughs> so I'm okay, I'm totally fine. They know me for the second and uh, so it's all good. You're going to ask for your barber pretty soon. You know, and yeah, they're... actually they're open here. So I'm in Ottawa at the moment. Okay. Uh, it's just, you know, I'm being a little too cautious, I would say. I can just uh, hop on to uh, uh, one of the shops and get a haircut. But uh, yeah, I've just been too cautious and trying to still avoid the crowds as much as I can. I think caution is uh, just fine in this yeah. uh, circumstance. I mean, uh, I'm... I've really, I had a conversation with my friend yesterday where I said, you know, oh, I'm being pretty uh, safe in Toronto. I just don't think that we should be that confident because we're still getting like, you know, six, 700 cases a week. And he was like, you're only getting 700 cases a week. I'm in Ohio. We're getting like a thousand cases a day. And I was like, okay, well, that's crazy, but. Mm -hmm. That's... I think it's less than that. It's not as high as uh, 700. No. It's definitely gone down. Yeah, it, it's gone down. But I think it's, it's uh, I it, yeah, it's like five, 400 or, or something close to like median five, mm -hmm. 500. But to me, that's still an, a number that has three digits. So I get anxious. Right. Yeah. And clearly you have an, an element of that too. Um, if you're not getting in Ottawa, it's been close to 50 to 40 cases every day. Yeah. It's not as high as Toronto, and that was the reason I decided to move here a bit so that I can escape uh, because I knew that wherever there's a density, there's going to be higher incidence of cases just because people are together, they go around, so the chances of catching COVID 19 are higher, anyways. Yeah, so I moved to Ottawa because of that, and also we uh. Um, I think that the spread can just happen so much more quickly in a dense area. So mm. you have 50 that, I think that's why I worry about any number over three digits is because the, the idea that it could just shoot up very quickly. Although, you know, who knows, I, I'm, uh, I'm trying to find a balance between, um, alarmism and pessimism and like, yeah, yeah. I think it's not as bad as what we thought initially, you know, COVID-19 um, from the impression that we got when I was reporting about the whole situation in China, this, this could be the big pandemic that, you know, everybody was waiting for. Mm -hmm. It's not exactly um, the, the big pandemic that might happen in the future because the, uh, per, the, the death rate is still lower than, you know, um, let's say AIDS or um, some of the other big epidemics. Even SARS. It's Even SARS, actually. Yeah. yeah. 
even though it is a sort of evolved SARS virus of sorts, it's or, or yeah. the adjacent one, you know, it's, it's less, which is quite good. I've lived through three, I guess now, although uh, AIDS was, I was very young for the uh, beginnings of the AIDS HIV uh, pandemic. Uh -huh. And, and I mean, our definition of pandemic also has, I've had some types of realizations about that where I'm thinking, well, okay. Poverty is a pandemic, you know, global mm -hmm. opioid overdoses are, uh, uh, you know, like uh, overdoses are a type of pandemic at this point and, and for long. So, so I'm, uh, I'm, I'm having these mind blowing realizations, man. But um, yeah, so, so I was just wondering, you know, um, based on what you were just saying to me, what is some of your, uh, background in terms of getting into your field and um, as you said you you go back and forth between India and Canada and uh, if you want to get into why you uh, your family moved from India to Canada and all that stuff. Um, last year I was based in New Delhi I was working for the BBC. We were essentially covering China from India uh, because you know China being a journalist in China reporting from Beijing is really tough it's not that easy to um, report from uh, there because, you know, getting visas and uh, that type of stuff is really hard to come by. And so the team that I was working with is based in New Delhi, but we did cover China uh, mostly through social media, through the media reporting that's put out there. My interest in journalism just happened to be the case. So I was supposed to go to graduate school, get a PhD, become an academic. Uh, then I realized that it's not really something for me. Um, it was too, um, too complicated, too much, you know, it's up there in the ivory tower. People talk to each other. It's like a closed circle. You're basically confirming each other's biases and you're not really, you know, stepping outside your circle of uh, friends and colleagues and, you know, other academics. And that was something I didn't like. And so, um, at one point, I started, you know, reporting just, you know, random stories that I happened to come by. Um, and I got, like, some success from sending these stories, and I got published initially. And thanks to that, you know, um, I've just taught myself. Like, I didn't go to school for journalism. I pretty much self-taught, and I pretty much learned from people, and that's what I'm still doing. Um, and... So my journalism is focused on international relations, but I come to international relations from a different perspective. So I'm focused on anthropology, people, culture, languages, and how power manifests through uh, people and their languages and their understanding of the world through their, who they are. Not really, you know, what Putin is saying, what Justin Trudeau is saying, what Xi Jinping is saying, those are easy things to do, but then how does power sort of, you know, flow through the system and through people and cultures? So that's what I'm really, under, uh, you know, interested in reporting about. Um, yeah, so I did some reporting on China and since, since 2017, I've been covering China and international affairs. Um, I've done some reporting on Canada-China relations, primarily on... Um, you know, Canada was trying to sign a trade deal with China back in 2017. 
So Prime Minister Trudeau went to China and that was one of the stories that I covered. Um, and that sort of, you know, from there, um, China has become such a such an important country that everybody has to, you know, acknowledge that fact and we have to look at that. Uh, being a journalist, uh, I couldn't ignore, you know, what China was doing in international affairs and, and then pandemic happened and now everybody um, everybody was sort of, you know, not aware of how China was transforming the world all of a sudden has to acknowledge that reality. Um, and yeah. Um, that's all very interesting. Uh, I was just scratching my nose in front of you and felt, felt self-conscious. I think I might also have a, a spot, but that's fine. Spots on your nose happens. These are anxious times. Um, for India, for China, uh, that that's really there's two things you you said there that that uh, really stood out to me. Although it's really interesting, I I also uh, became somewhat self-taught, which is a misnomer when you don't go to university. It's really like you are taught by things that are not in the school. You know, you read books, you watch the things, and and. Uh, uh, animation writing and even stand up and, and all kinds of things have been learned on, on the fly. Uh, and, and I think that the great thing about that is, um, curiosity feels so natural in, in that and, and, and discovering your passion, um, almost feels easier because uh, you're, you're external of an academic environment. The pressure is off that you have to do this. You want to do this. You know, right, right. Um, and and so uh, I think that's a, a great thing. And also, I was wondering, you know, with that in mind, um, because the internet is is proliferated with uh, many people who do consider themselves self taught and informed, um, but then they wind up having, as you know, as someone who sounds like you really study social media, they come to conspiratorial conclusions. They uh, rely on, on, um, unstable facts, you know, so it's a strange way, not unstable, but questionable facts, sometimes evolving facts. Um, uh, how do you distinguish yourself professionally from that, uh, type of, what would I call it? Like uh hive, hive, internet hive mind of people who think they know but they don't really know. That's a MTV Cribs, no, MTV. That's, that's a really good question. And uh, the type of work that I did for the BBC was essentially looking at that, you know, particular aspect, how we deal with disinformation and uh, misinformation that's out there. Um, I think you have to start from a point, um, you have to acknowledge the fact that, you know, powers, states and countries use information to achieve a certain goal. And everybody does that. It's something uh, the U.S. does it, China does it, any country in the world. Um, it's part of the, uh, the framework, how we understand international relations, and it's part of that whole process. But then it comes down to what are the countries trying to achieve from this sort of process of you know, publishing misinformation or disinformation? What are the values? And are those values really changing? Like, let's say the U.S. now it's not the same what it was in 2016 or before. So we have to be more cautious about what we read in the media when President Trump says something or his um, press secretary says something. 
So you have to focus on the value system and who who is saying what and why are they saying that, you know, where where are they coming from? And you have to be mindful about that. There is misinformation and in certain countries rely on that uh, power more than others. So Russia definitely is more invested in disinformation because they don't have the sort of economic clout to uh, achieve their ultimate goal. Uh, China similarly is investing more of uh, their power in that, uh, you know, um, making their diplomats to say certain things and and they have a whole apparatus of the like, state media which essentially tries to, um, you know, push disinformation through their networks. Um, so you have to look at the country and what are they trying to achieve in the diplomacy. Um, but I think certain countries such as Russia and China are definitely more invested in that because you come down to um, the, the kind of power they have in the world and what they can do with that power. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I'm not, I'm not trying to whitewash it in a way that, you know, West has some sort of moral authority over other countries. Mm. There's definitely disinformation, misinformation coming out of White House. And we've seen that more often now since 2016. Um, but being mindful about that fact, being skeptical is important. Um, that's where we should start um, with like, um, you know, decent amount of skepticism and, you know, being aware of uh, who is saying what and what are they trying to achieve with what they're saying. Uh, I know this is a simple uh question, but, but could you just distinguish between misinformation and disinformation? Um, so disinformation is um, a campaign. So there's somebody sitting somewhere who's planning this sort of, you know, campaign to um, achieve an agenda. So uh, a target. So let's say Russia, you know, their security services or something like that, you know, trying to um, put President Trump into White House. So that particular thing, you know, that campaign would be called disinformation. It's backed by a state. It's backed by uh, an entity, an organization versus misinformation, which is, um, which is more like a misunderstanding of facts, which is, you know, um, somewhere along the line when you're putting things together, um, facts were pushed around and we came to a conclusion which is not accurate. Right. Uh, it could be based on human error, uh, based on um, how somebody was putting together an article and they uh, missed out on certain facts and that led to uh, a wrong conclusion. Yeah. Um, just, just to put something forward, uh, I would say that in, in the West, uh, especially North America, uh, North America, it seems like um, misinformation is one of the things that is powering um you could call it like the citizen um divide and i mean i do hate to say it but i think the more toxic misinformation might be on the um the trump supporting cycle because i just think there's a lot of people with financial gain you know whether it's from capitalist ventures like high, high, like new drugs natural solutions all this type of thing uh, uh, alternatives to government offered programs. 
Um, I know there is disinformation from the Trump campaign, but it also seems like he's there's no plan. He just gives misinformation mm -hmm. sometimes. And whereas I would say, obviously, someone like Pompeo or John Bolton, that's more disinformation or very skewed information that they're giving. And sometimes no plan or, you know, confusing people is itself disinformation. Uh, that's what Russia prides itself in. They, mm -hmm. they uh, like to sow discord and confusion and then achieve a goal in the midst of, you know, confusion and fog of misinformation. So, and I think, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, President Trump does look like sometimes he's, you know, trying to confuse people, but then there might be an ulterior motive behind that. Uh -huh. which only comes to light when you start connecting dots. And I think it's like with this whole postal service stuff, like, you know, initially everybody was like, why is he trying to do this? You know, why is he trying to uh, confuse people? But then you see that, you know, by confusing people, they wouldn't vote and that he might stay in power. So, yeah, I think at times this whole distinction between disinformation and misinformation is blurry. It's not that easy to distinguish and, um, and depends on, you know, what is being targeted and what are people trying to achieve from that. Yeah. And, and misinformation also, um, could have a presumption of lack of motive, whereas, uh, disinformation almost never would. And, and that can be something, and you're saying that, um, that's why things that could be perceived as misinformation are still disinformation. Yeah, yeah. So we don't know. It's hard to attribute disinformation campaigns. Like I worked on that, like um, I tried to work on this whole 5G conspiracy theory, uh, you know, the 5G towers and they are spreading COVID-19. We could trace it back to Russia. RT, RT was the one which was, you know, trying to spread that. And initially it was difficult and it's still hard to attribute disinformation because now you can pretty much set up an entire troll army on Twitter and run a campaign uh, with a small budget. You don't need to invest a lot of money in that. And, and, and then you can use VPNs and all of that stuff. So it's hard to attribute who is the ultimate owner of this disinformation campaign. Well, I, I should tell you that on, in terms of English speaking stuff, you know, I uh, follow a lot. I've actually been following um, like not uh, always racist accounts but far right uh blogs and and then obviously once you got into twitter and stuff since 9 11 you know because it was as soon as that happened there was this large scale um obviously attack uh muslims were um viewed it was like a return to the 1980s and and the iran scare era you know and and uh it, 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 and I, and when Hollywood people spoke out, the first website I found was called boycotthollywood.com. And it had all these links to people who wound up being a lot of them backed off. So it was Andrew Sullivan, for instance, was a huge part of that movement. Um, a man named Charles Johnson and his blog, Little Green Footballs, was pivotal in uh, creating this sort of American um inherently discriminatory like bigoted language and 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 a consistency of values the consistency of israel and um they, they and and was was in the right and they they would make fun of 
any protesters in very harsh ways and and terms like identitarian that exist now um are like etymologically linked to words i saw back then like idiotarian which none of these words are good part of what's driving me nuts you're talking about language is it's shifted so much um and and in the west i was going to actually i remember what my initial point was by the way i have adhd so this is like here we are i told you a bunch of talking points and we're still on now i found out you're doing you're interested in language and and bots and all of this stuff and i'm like oh let's talk but um okay, i i do this myself like i switch from topics and then i completely forget where i started off and so it's all right luckily my uh listenership so to speak is uh, aware of this and hopefully they enjoy it and i think this is a very interesting uh series of topics no matter what but but uh what i was going to say and the reason i said misinformation uh rather than disinformation although it may be actually a targeted thing is that the press in canada and america is from what i understand and what i've experienced very low paid often uh freelance and uh the editing is now uh much less i'm not talking about the big papers but the big papers are just a small part of the picture you know and i am also talking about the big papers you know like uh so how many articles do you see that have like multiple typos you know and and on on like established magazine websites and such you know and and um and the the money that is now in uh say reporting every foible of donald trump as a major mistake i don't know how they're going to spin his brother dying i hope they don't try to make that into something i'm sure that that is the uh yeah they should just let that be <laughs> they let that be uh but but yeah um do, do, do you do you have uh do you see what i'm saying with that is in your yeah i mean um journalism in canada so i've never had a full-time job in journalism in canada yeah uh i'll be honest so i've never worked in a newsroom in canada my primary experience has been working with the bbc which was in india um and i've done some freelancing i worked with a bunch of media organizations in canada but only as a freelancer uh getting a full time job in canada as a journalist is tough uh until unless you have the right uh, pedigree you have the right connections the right friend circle you hang out with the right sort of people it's only then you end up in these are uh, you know sort of well paying journalism jobs and um, it's sad and you know um there are um only a certain set of people who get to do interesting work um canada is such an international country we we forget that you know we have such a diversity of experience and we are still focused on a very small set of storytelling experiences there there are stories that you can tell there are people in gta you know from all the communities around the world they live there and if you talk to them they know things that will blow your mind essentially there are communities which were moved out of their original countries and they live there now yeah. you can tell stories which will just you know shake you from the bottom of it like but we are like the cbc or like global mail they're only focused on a very small subset of reporting because it's more to do with you know the ad dollars where is the money coming from who's going to pay for it mm-hmm. uh people don't pay for news anymore um it's sad you know, um we've been moving towards this whole entire paywall model but it's still like in the early stages 
like New York Times has a huge success. They've been able to convince people to pay for news. Uh, but besides that, maybe Global Mail, Global Mail is expensive. They almost charge, what, $300 a year for um, their subscription, which is expensive. Not everybody can pay for that. I mean, imagine with CERB, you know, you, you spend $300 of your $2,000 a month just to, uh, on, on uh, <laughs> just to get the news. I mean, I, I, I know exactly what you mean when you say that about the GTA. I've experienced this throughout my life, and uh, it's one of the greatest things about living in the city. And my, one of my favorite things to share is at, at a place called Jerk King, which is at Bloor and Dufferin in Toronto, a Jamaican restaurant. Uh, take mm, I've been there. I know that. Beastie place. And I was in there once, and a man was on the phone loudly, uh, having a, a very spirited conversation, and he was talking, and he's going on. It was almost a performative conversation, but I was here for it, as the kids say. And... Uh, uh, he, he at one point he's like no no i i can't go back to nigeria in october i don't want to affect the election <laughs> and i was like this is toronto i mean there was a murder once that there was no further follow-up on this there was a murder of a woman once um in an alleyway uh near where i was staying one and uh it was seemingly based on pressure from the from uh like political factions in Eritrea or Ethiopia, I can't recall, um, about, you know, choosing an affiliation. Like, I don't know if that's real or not, but it sounds like there's this level uh, of sophistication. There was issues with obviously um, um, it, factions of parts of India, I believe in in, in uh, Toronto that, I, you know, you'll talk to a security guard, he'll say, oh, this, the t a Tamil person can't see like a Somalian or something. You know, I don't remember what the actual cultural beef was, but it was just, it, it, it's so deep and, and you're absolutely right. And are, are there community newspapers uh, it, within Canada that you know of where there might be more in depth? Yeah, there are tons, you know. Um, I've done some reporting actually for, um, you know, there is a magazine called This Magazine. Yes. So I did a story for them about ethnic media, primarily, you know, South Asian uh, local media. There's a lot of money that goes into, um, you know, that type of journalism. But the, the thing is that those stories only remain within that community, yeah. primarily because of language issues. You know, the translation doesn't happen. The investment is mostly in, you know, um, writing stories in local languages or whatever language the community speak, speaks. And uh, that content never gets translated into English um, because you still don't have any, you know, either you're doing ethnic journalism, it's a wrong, I don't like this term, but it's often used by CRTC, ethnic media. You mean a Canadian institution hasn't updated a term? Oh, I, 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 they, they've had a major slip. I, I'm, I'm shocked. Yeah. So they call it ethnic media, ethnic journalism. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and that's where you know we are pretty much. You know, if we have to, if we want to move away from this, you know, from this whole paradigm, we'll have to acknowledge the fact that there are people within the Chinese community people within the South Asian community and other communities all across which 
do amazing journalism and they have stories which are more international than any of the stories that CBC might uh, have on their page. Um, so that distinction is still there and people struggle with that. I did a story essentially looking at, you know, this money is flowing into ethnic media organizations, but they're not accountable. There's a lot of corruption as well. Like, you know, they, they take money from advertisers uh, and they take money from the government. So they're, they're cashing in on this whole ethnic media you know, thing, but they're not actually achieving what they're supposed to do. Uh-huh. They're not investing in hiring journalists, you know. They're essentially running, running ad campaigns on, uh, in their own language. And... Right, yeah. Which is also something that, I mean, you could say happens uh, in, in America perhaps more so, but, but with, uh, with certain, certain news, news outlets. And it's interesting you would say that because sometimes some stories bubble to the top. And in terms of the Chinese issues, I would say the Epoch Times is one that people seem to be more aware of because it is like, uh, I didn't even really follow this story because there was something when it gets into sort of um, war, uh, you know, c- propaganda conflicts for lack of a better word. Um, there's just so much uh, in, in China specifically in East Asia that is very complicated where two things are true at once, you know, and um there's no question the repression of like probably Falun Gong is like very strong and Rohingya, you know, the Uyghurs and and uh, uh, it it goes on and on. But I also, as you were saying, sometimes you wonder, well, who's the other party funding this? Who is who is benefiting external of this repressed community? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. With Epic Times, you know, they they say it on their paper, it's Falun Gong, and it's funded by, um, partially funded by the US government. They never hide that. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying we should not read them. We should definitely read what they're saying. Um, And there's a term that I would like to throw around. It's called triangulation of information. Uh, You have to triangulate what you're reading, like Epoch Times, um, what Global Times is saying, then maybe what Washington Post is saying. And you have to keep an open mind when you read these uh, papers. So Epoch Times is definitely, they say it on their paper where they're getting their money from. They don't make money from uh, circulation of paper uh, because you know they don't charge you a subscription. I think they started doing that recently. Uh, people are paying for the paper now, but primarily their funding is coming from White House. And they even say like, uh, President Trump loves to read Epoch Times. That's uh, amazing, and and it's interesting to think that he likes Tucker Carlson and the Epoch Times. Although maybe Tucker Carlson liked the Epoch Times, who knows? And if yeah, he- yeah, <laughs> they do exaggerate. Uh, I'll be honest. I've read their stories. They do exaggerate stories, you know, to get the eyeballs, and because the community has been repressed, uh, you know, by a lot in China. So the sentiments run high when they report a story and sentiments at times might blur the facts and which is something we should be aware of when you're reading something like Epic Times. Yeah. And, and uh, I, I think that's why I enjoy this uh, show, Democracy Now!, which obviously has a very left-wing um, slant, but the slant can be heard in the host, uh, Amy Goodman's voice, every time she is uh sneering about something uh, a new policy she doesn't like but they also 
report on international issues. They have clips of demonstrations or, or interviews with sometimes two people on two separate sides. And also, as you said, triangulation, I think, is key. It's like I'm listening to that, but I'm also making sure I'm going on Associated Press, Reuters, BBC, um, Toronto, you know, Canadian media, I, you know, um, on and on and on because um, it's there's there's so much information, most likely, that goes through the cracks of one story, but another story might seize on another reporter might might seize on and, and, and then you might get the whole story. Right. Yeah, and that's because, you know, a lot of the media organizations are working with small budgets now. They don't pay their journalists well enough. And uh, so people get things wrong all the time. It's fine. There's nothing. We are humans. Yeah. Uh, um, and, you know, acknowledging that fact and moving on from there. And we, we should, you know, at times be aware of some sort of like a timeline. Or um, I would say, not a timeline, but more like, um, you know, you should place your sources on some sort of uh, parameter saying, okay, this source is too biased versus this source, which is somewhat biased and, you know, but everybody has their bias, even I do. Um, yeah. I might be too critical of China. Some people will say that. Um, you might have seen that on my Twitter feed. Yeah. Uh, not as critical as some of the other reporters who are, almost like they do China bashing journalism. That's what I call it. Find something negative, just amplify that and that's journalism. Hey, I hope you've been enjoying this talk with Adil Brar. Um, lots of information, lots of things were learned by me. Hopefully you're learning stuff too, or at least you're enjoying the sounds of our voices and falling into a delightful slumber. Just wanted to let you know, again, if you uh, want to support the podcast, subscribing, reviewing, and rating it online on iTunes is amazing, and sharing it with friends, telling people about it, tweeting about it, all that stuff, honestly, it really helps. I uh, There's a million podcasts, and I'd like to continue to grow the audience for this one, as they say in the brand business. So the best way to do that is by sharing and stuff like that. Also, if you do want to support the podcast financially, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash Nick Flanagan or ko-fi.com slash Nick Flanagan. I know I'm not great at updating it or anything, but I do try to put out multiple episodes a week. So you will be supporting me uh, doing that and I will get it together to offer a lot of um, patron-only perks. And I, I have in the past, and I will update those very shortly. Also, I feel like there was one last thing. Oh, yeah, I have a newsletter. So if you just go to tinyletter.com slash Nick Flanagan, I would love it if you signed up for my newsletter. Finally, on Friday, March, no, on Friday, August 21st, I will be doing comedy, five minutes of comedy, as part of the Avail Comedy Show at Nowhere Comedy Club. Um, it'll be a Zoom show. Tickets are on sale. I would really appreciate your support for that. I'm not trying to squeeze every last dime out of you. I know if you can't put money into stuff, I get it completely. But I wanted to let you know if you want to see me do some comedy for the first time in like five months, four months, however long it's been, this is your shot. Uh, check it out. 
Avail Comedy Night, Nowhere Comedy Club. It's all online. We'll put the information in the episode. Thank you very much. Back to the interview. I was reading something really interesting in uh, uh, stuff that I was I was looking into while when we were set to talk, and uh, one of them was about the uh, conflict uh, in, in the Himalayan area that uh, I am now afraid to pronounce since I uh, said the name. But Lad- Ladash, did, did you say Ladakh? Ladakh. Ladakh, yeah. And um, it was saying that this had led to the Prime Minister uh, Modi um, to uh, he was getting very uh, vocal in sort of a chest puffing way about the incident. And then the media was a great deal of it, which is, as I understand, has elements of sensationalism to it um, or, or large media television outlets. Were, were sort of saying to boycott Chinese products. And the irony was there were Chinese owners for a lot of these, for at least a few of these media companies, you know? And, and that was a, an interesting thing. To uh-huh. No, they're not owners, essentially. What they do is they sponsor these TV shows. So let's say, you know, you have CBC. So CBC, not CBC, sorry. Uh, Hockey Nights in Canada. It's sponsored by Huawei. Um, the Chinese yeah. phone company. I think they still are. Um, so <laughs> it's sponsorship, you know, and, and when India and China were sort of, you know, going for each other's neck, there was this whole, you know, controversy about taking money from Chinese companies. And, yeah. Uh, and, and those TV networks have now, I think a lot of them have removed the funding. So they're not taking the money anymore. But when it all started, you know, initially there was like, there'd be um, sponsorship ad at the bottom saying we take money from China as well as we are going to criticize them on this TV network right now. Well, okay. I'll take that. That's yeah. it. Um, and then I, 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 this is going to be my last question before I ask you stuff about COVID because uh-huh. I mean, this, we could go on this and I'm sure this might wind up being a, a 30 minute thing, but um bots you mentioned bots earlier and having been around twitter for so long and facebook but more so twitter i think um it seems like there is so much coordination i mean it really seems like one out of every five people commenting on politics have a a script you know and i'm just wondering whether that's bots, whether that's almost coordinated political things started on Facebook or WhatsApp that people just sort of know how to use the language of. Have you looked into or discovered anything about this? Are you more familiar with the, um, you know, Sino uh, Chinese, like uh, kind of uh, South Asian end of this? Uh, what is your experience looking? Yeah, um, I've seen this for sure. Like. China is definitely investing a lot more now. Mm-hmm. Um, Russia essentially mastered this whole technique of you know creating bots and coordinating some sort of campaign. Um, and you have to closely look at the language they're using, how that language is structured. If it you know uh, it's naturally being produced on a computer or it's you know being said by someone else, um, it's easy to tell that. So there are certain programs which can distinguish between um, 
you know, a campaign. So if a certain message is being um, spread out by 10 accounts, you can easily say that, you know, it was a small campaign, but it was there. There's one owner behind this whole uh, campaign. There's one person who's running this. Mm -hmm. So you have to, uh, what I do is, you know, I copy paste that, uh, whatever they're saying, and then look through uh, the Twitter search and uh, see if the same message is being replicated. They right. often use hashtags. So I think yesterday Trudeau resigned yeah. was trending. And I think um, there's always these right-wing trolls or like Russia or whoever that is, I don't know. So, mm -hmm. um, so you can see how they tweet. And if there's uh, coordination between them, uh, you, can, you can say it's a campaign. You may not be able to say exactly who was running this, but then you can definitely say, you know, there is something behind it. China is new to whole, uh, this whole thing. They, they are not good at it. They, they have um, tried it, like, especially during this whole India-China, the conflict stuff, they tried to learn from Pakistan, which is the arch rival of India. And, um, so there's a coordination between India and Pakistan, sorry, China and Pakistan. Uh, there's a whole history behind that. It might, we might not have the time to go through it, but then um, during this whole uh, phase of India-China conflict, you know, China tried to learn from Pakistan how to run these campaigns. And uh, it was quite clear. You could see these trolls, which were either in Pakistan or China, um, you know, running a campaign to target uh, Indian audience. And similarly, trolls in India trying to do that to Chinese, uh, you know, trolls. So I think it's fairly new in that part of the world. It's, I mean, it's not new for India and Pakistan, but it's new for India and China. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But China has, um, China's always failed at uh, sort of winning friends and uh, winning hearts. Mm -hmm. They've always failed at, uh, you know, influencing the outcome of elections. So you can see that in Taiwan, which is next door, they have not been able to achieve the outcome of changing the government in that on the island. They they wanted uh, the president Tsai Ing-wen, uh, the DPP candidate, to uh, lose uh, during recent elections, and they failed at that. Um, so I would say China is still like you know learning, but they are more invested in this uh, whole campaign, this disinformation campaign stuff. And they want to do this during 2020 elections. And um, there's been some uptick. So if you look at in April, I think in 2020, uh, Twitter took down almost 20,000 Chinese accounts, which were based in Beijing or Shanghai. Yeah. And this was much higher than the number of fake accounts being run by Russia. Hmm. So for me, it was interesting because up until now, it's always been Russia, which has like a huge army of trolls and bots. Right. Um, but again, there, I mean, it's easy to mask. This again could be Russia, you know, masking its own bots as Chinese. You know, it, it's hard to, yeah. Twitter can only be certain to a certain extent. Huh. I mean, my, yeah. my theory about Canadian, the, the Trudeau thing is just that I think um, we have a lot of, mischief makers in Canada. And I don't mean, I mean that with a capital M, you know, these are, these are people with like strange agendas and maybe they're being paid by the governments you're talking about. But, uh, 
because I just see so much of the uh, anti-Trudeau stuff, so much of, I mean, it's it's from a ground level, and it might just be that we're more gullible, and all you need is a few bots, and then you're off to the races with real people, which I think is another thing we don't really have a full understanding of, or I don't. And uh, yeah, I mean, it is very confusing. That's really interesting to me what you're saying about um, China, uh, trying to figure out the bot game, especially given all the recent, on top of the COVID situation, all of the recent stuff with Hong Kong and then uh, India and Taiwan. But- Yeah, actually, let me come to that if you don't mind. Uh, we can talk about COVID-19. Yes, yes. yeah. yeah. Um, so China, I think the one thing that they were able to achieve is they were able to divert the attention from China from themselves um, as the primary, um, you know, as somebody that was responsible for COVID-19. Um, I'm, I'm not saying they were, but that whole, you know, understanding that, you know, initially the US had or like the other countries were trying to blame China for COVID-19, they were able to divert that attention back onto the US. Yeah. Um, and they didn't have to do much because the whole COVID-19 situation in the U.S. is now so bad. So they were easily able to divert the attention towards back towards the U.S. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where I think for the first time we saw China coming out onto the world stage and uh, making its own case um, that they think COVID-19 did not start in China. Uh, I wasn't even really aware of that um point of view what what is what is their way of making that case exactly what have they, what have they said well they're saying you know look at past pandemics they're saying look at um, uh, spanish flu or like you know other pandemics we've had in the past we've never been able to attribute the ultimate origin of that uh, epidemic or pandemic which is true it's hard to until now we don't know where did SARS come from so it's a classic um, disinformation um, strategy confuse people if you don't have a have like an ultimate answer, just confuse people so that they don't ask you know questions. Where did it come from? Uh, we still don't know. We don't know if it's like a zoonotic transfer. Uh, I'm not trying to promote any theories, but I'm just saying we don't know what is the ultimate origin of COVID-19 yet. Um, um, just like SARS, you know, we have never been able to attribute the intermediary animal between. Um, the bats and the civet cats. Mm -hmm. Sorry, the civet cat is said to be the animal which was responsible for spreading SARS to uh, humans. And which is not like a hundred percent sure, you know, thing. Sci scientists are still like, you know, discussing this. So China is using that whole confusion to make its own, um, you know, argument that, you know, China may not have been the, the country of origin for uh, COVID-19. Um, with that in mind, as someone, you were covering um, the Wuhan situation, uh, and so you, you, you've you been witnessing COVID um, in, in a lot of ways from, from the outset. Am I, am I correct about that? Yeah, so I was not based in Wuhan. I was uh, mostly based um, out of New Delhi from where we were reporting. So right. we started seeing the reporting on COVID-19 during the first week of uh, January. Um, and a colleague of mine who was older than me, she had uh, reported on SARS back in 2002 and she was like, this is something big. 
I was initially dismissive. I was not so sure. I, I'll be honest. Um, but then as we got into the third and the fourth week of January, that's when Xi Jinping and all the other party leaders got together and they were like, this is something serious. We need to address this. Uh, but there is a whole period between 31st of December and 25th of January when um, the CCP members got together. So those three to three weeks, actually, so those three week period, that three week period could have been something um, China uh, could have done things differently. They could have uh, stopped the spread of COVID-19 in China. Um, and I think that's where even the WHO is to an extent culpable, that they didn't uh, raise the alarm soon enough. Um, we don't know exactly what happened there. WHO is not being entirely transparent about uh, what they know. Um, now they've acknowledged the fact that the new COVID-19 was being uh, transmitted from human to human around 31st of December. And, um, they raised the alarm through their local office in China. Um, but then the US had shut down its own um, you know, health office in, in China some time back. So they didn't have anybody on the ground who could have coordinated with the, with the WHO. Um, so I think we will need like a proper investigation to ultimately attribute um, the, you know, who could have done things differently so that mm. um, you know a lot of people wouldn't have died because of COVID nineteen? Yeah, and just um, to to sort of uh, move into one of the uh, more the, the the here and now is uh, the Russian registering of a vaccine and and something I was wondering about that was your your opinion on if. Uh, our understanding of this vaccine and our and and the general suspicion in the West is based on an accurate perception or on a media presented perception, or if it's colored by that, or if it's both. Yeah, I think the um, concern is valid because they haven't completed all the trials. Mm -hmm. I think they've just done like first or the second trial. They haven't done the third trial. Um, as you know, developing vaccines is not that easy. <laughs> I, I don't think Russia has a vaccine. Yeah. The concern is valid to be suspicious of um, Russia developing a vaccine because they have, I think there's a lot of internal discord in Russia. They're dealing with a lot of stuff that Putin may not be able to handle exactly uh, in the way he would like to. Mm -hmm. So this whole vaccine gamble might be to calm his people down a bit um, because COVID-19 was and still is pretty bad in Russia. Um, the, the reporting has been, um, there's been some reporting by the BBC. BBC has a huge office in Moscow. I think that's the most reliable source we have at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, they've been reporting about this, you know, doctors committing suicide, jumping from the window, uh, mysteriously dying here and there, mm -hmm. just like you know what happened in China, where um, doctor, uh, one of the famous doctors who tried to raise the alarm, and they um, they died because of COVID nineteen, and some of the other um, people who disappeared. Uh, yeah, there's one of the bloggers in China who's still missing. We don't know where he is. 
sinister sinister things and 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 and, and you know wrap, wrap wrapping up i'm just wondering if you think that globally um in terms of misreporting underreporting suppression of numbers is um widespread if so what have you what have you learned about that in 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 your coverage of this and i suppose it would have an uh, East and South Asian, you know, if, if that's what you know best, I mean, that's what I'd love to know as well. Yeah, um, a lot of the countries are underreporting the cases for sure. They, um, first of all, testing itself is not uh, hard science. There are times with, you know, you might get a negative test, a positive test, um, and that may not be an accurate reading of uh, COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Um, U.S. is doing way more tests, so we have more cases. That is, it sounds conspiracy theory-ish, but I think that's fair enough to say. And some countries are definitely underreporting their COVID-19 numbers. Mm-hmm. Uh, from India, I know, and from China, I know they they try to underreport their numbers, and they still are doing that. Um, in India, at the moment, um, they're attributing a certain number of deaths to let's say diabetes or other uh, underlying diseases instead of COVID-19. Right, so they're Uh, the opposite of what conspiracy theorists say is happening where they say people are being labeled as having COVID if they also have have dying. No, it's the other way around actually. In India and other places, people are dying because of COVID, but so there's a thing called comorbidity. So they could have died because of you know, they had an underlying condition like uh, diabetes or hypertension, which was worsened because of COVID-19. But in the, in the report, in the medical report, they'll say the person died because of hypertension, not COVID-19. Yeah, it's, so that attribution becomes a problem, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's a very politically loaded thing now uh, because countries know that the way you report COVID-19 will ultimately have an impact on how you recover, how your economy will come back. Yeah. How much uh, foreign funding are you going to get for investment? And and it's a, it's an interesting information landscape we have ongoing. Um, in the U.S., I'm not so sure about the U.S. how numbers are because I um, I'm tracking more about you know what, what what is happening in India and China. That's really the focus of my journalism, and I'm not so sure about the U.S. Mm-hmm. So I should not say exactly how things are in the U.S. But I think. Um, the U.S. is doing more tests, and that's why we have, um, you know, the numbers are looking like, you know, crazy and they're big. But I might be wrong, so I don't want to comment on that um, <laughs> any further. But in India, I, I can say for sure, doctors are uh, misattributing um, the deaths. That's all really interesting stuff. And I've, you know, we've almost been going for an hour now and I don't want to take up too much more of your time. So I, I really appreciate that you came in and, and said that. And I was wondering if, if you just wanted to give any, um, I don't know, final thoughts. I know we didn't get to like some of the issues we talked about, but it just feels like we've got a lot of some really great. Yeah, we did cover quite a bit. That, that's all right. Yeah. Totally. And I just was wondering if you had anything you wanted to add about some of the information you gave or if you wanted to give a pep talk to people about our futures? No, I think I've given long enough sermon that people are bored by now. But I'll just say uh, uh, that, you know, you should, we should be reading all across, you know, instead of uh, 
keeping an open mind is important um, right now. And uh, COVID-19 is a once in a lifetime kind of scenario, which will continue to play all across our lives for the next decade. Yeah. Uh, it's not going to disappear anytime soon. Even though the, the virus might disappear, we might get a vaccine or something and we'll be fine. But then the impact, the economic impact will be with us for a very long time. Yeah, the reorganizing uh, of the world, so to speak. And, and yeah, yeah, pretty much, you know. And, and we should be looking at what China is doing more closely um, rather than dismissing it. I think still a lot of people that I talk to say, oh, you are too alarmist. You are, because you do this all the time, so you're raising the alarm because you are in this and you, you know, you have a career based on this, so you'll definitely like to raise an alarm. But I think it's a fair enough concern that we should be um, watching what China does, mm-hmm. um, how they want to change the world and they want to, um, they're not like Russia. They're not like, you know, where they see things as black and white, they see things in, in gray. You have a lot of people sitting on the fence and if you can win them, you can change their mind, then that's good enough. Like that's good for China, that's good for the world. And um, So they look for these sort of people who are sitting on the fence who might become more China friendly. Um, mm-hmm. And the last thing that I want to say is you should, you should be reading and closely following what's happening in Xinjiang the ethnic uh, cleansing almost that's happening in uh, the Uyghur autonomous region of China, as well as Tibet. Mm -hmm. Um, I personally started working as a journalist writing about Tibet. That's where my focus has been and that's how I approach China. Um, But now we should be um, mindful about what is happening in Xinjiang and we cannot just dismiss it as like, this is how China does things, no. This is a human rights issue. This is something that concerns all of us. Um, and this is something, you know, sitting here in Canada as a country that's not exactly sure about its China policy, sitting almost on the fence. Um, I think we should be more proactive and we should be engaging with these issues more actively than, you know, trying to be uh, dismissive. And, uh-huh. you know, yeah. And what I've heard is is uh, we're almost culpable in a sense as consumers because it sounds like people are being forced to make brand name clothing and and items you know uh, in in some of these situations. This is at least some things I've heard on in in media. I don't know if that's correct or not. Yeah, yeah. Um, so initially, China sent some of these um, the Uyghur people to the camps to re-educate them, mm-hmm. and then they realized you know the international media has learned about this and they they are uh, criticizing it a lot and so they decided okay now maybe we can use them to uh, use them as cheap labor so essentially a lot of the people in like shenzhen or some of these uh, inner parts of china their income has gone up so they don't want to work in these factories so they are looking for cheap labor um, so xinjiang has emerged as this uh, factory of china almost um, they're trying to outsource some of these production centers to Xinjiang and like things like masks and, you know, clothing are now made in uh, Xinjiang and, and the companies are culpable almost, you know, um, and that's the reality we have to deal with. Um, these are the conversation we should be having in, in Canada and also Hong Kong. 
where almost 300,000 Canadians live and they call it home. Yeah. Um, all we've done is say that we are concerned. That's pretty much all uh, Canada has done and said so far. And uh, Classic move. You say you're concerned as you watch people uh, suffer. I mean, that is the Canadian, that is an unfortunate attribute I've found in Canada and I really think needs to fund fundamentally change. And, and this has been really, really fascinating. And uh, I hope... I hope you've uh, enjoyed your time here, and um, I've certainly enjoyed talking to you. Thanks for having me. This was really interesting. Yeah, you're telling me. I, I'm definitely going to be following all of this. And everybody, read everything, but trust nothing. <laughs> that's I like that. That's, of course, for you. You can. <laughs> and that was my talk with Adil Brar. Uh, very interesting, very bright guy, really looking forward to see what he's going to be up to in the future. And uh, hopefully uh, his message to triangulate your gathering of information is taken because I think that's one of the most useful things that he said in the episode. It's just so important for us to be aware of what biases exist because everything's got a bias. And... Uh, take in a lot of it and take them in with a grain of salt that you throw behind your shoulder and then it becomes a pillar of salt and it's Lot's poor wife. That's a little Bible reference for those of you who know about the Bible, which I only know about. I'm not sure I've ever read. I think I've read picture book versions of the Bible, which probably get the message across. Anyway, I'm Nick. Thank you for listening to the podcast. I've done all the plugging earlier, but you know, like, share, rate, review, subscribe, all that stuff. Exercise. Stay healthy. I care for you. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great day, night, afternoon, evening, whatever it is, time-wise right now. Enjoy that moment. Thanks. Oh, man. Nick. Oh, God. Flanagan. Oh, Weekly. Oh, man. Nick. Flanagan. Weekly.